We are actually allowing very dangerous people to get away with murder and that empowers them. They think they're bulletproof and they, you know, they might go and do it again. I'm Louise Tickle and you're listening to Hidden Homicides, a podcast series from Tortoise Media. In this series, I investigate three remarkable cases that reveal so much about how women may be being killed but never counted. And in a fourth case, I expose how failings in the system leave one family's questions unanswered forever. I do need to warn you, this episode and the whole series will detail distressing cases of violence, coercion and controlling behaviour against women. Some of it is really difficult to hear and so listener discretion is advised. In episode one, I began my investigation into the death of a young woman called Katie Wilding and of the frightening abuse she was being subjected to. If you haven't heard it yet, I'd recommend going back and listening before you start this one. In this episode, you'll hear me return to Katie's story and dig into the police investigation that never was. And you'll also hear about a new case, a horrifying story about a killer twice missed. It's Friday, October the 14th, 2016. 21-year-old Katie Wilding is in a police interview room in Torquay. She's just been rescued by police from her flat, where she'd been held hostage by her abusive former partner for more than 36 hours. It's pretty obvious that she's not slept all night. Sitting in a big squashy armchair in the interview suite, she looks exhausted and apprehensive. Her mum, Julie, is waiting outside as Katie gives her first recorded statement to the police about what Mitchell Richardson has done to her. So when he'd pinned you down then, like, was that before that he tried to get your phone? No, it was, it was after. No, it was, it was after, after, yeah. Right, it was okay. after because he was telling me to lie next to him and... Yeah, that's what yeah, I understood. And I tried so to get out. And he, he just, he just Halfway through, there's a pause in the questions. Katie leaves the room to see her mum. She's tearful and she's worried that the police don't believe her. I'm going to pop next door and speak to the guys. Um, do you want to have a break now, or are you...? Yeah. Yeah? OK. Um, obviously, you can't talk to me about this outside of the oh, room. Yeah, OK. Uh, it's ten past twelve. OK. There's, they do the first half, and then there's a break, and they leave for a few minutes. And Katie came out and she wanted a cigarette, obviously. She she was desperate for a cigarette. And they take you outside because you can't smoke in the place. So we were walking around this little car park area and she said, I said, have you been honest? Have you told them everything? And she said, um, the lady doesn't believe me, Mum. She doesn't believe me. And I said, what do you mean? She doesn't believe you. Well, she keeps going over things and asking me questions again. She doesn't believe... And, when we went back, I before she came in for the second half, I actually said to the to the lady interviewing her, Katie thinks you don't believe her, knowing that she did. And the lady said, what we're trying to do, Katie, is make sure that we've covered every angle. In the break, Julie reassures her. The police officer's only trying to check her account, make sure of the details. And so Katie goes back in and she carries on. The whole ordeal takes around 90 minutes. I know it's been really difficult and um, thank you for, for being honest. It's difficult because I love him and I know he's going to, like, be angry with me. Not angry, but, like, you know, 
because uh, I know that he knows that he did wrong. And I've just taught, you know, I've just wanted to leave that in the past and not to take it any further and now I have, so I feel a little bit guilty now. Mm. Okay. The time is now at eight minutes to one o'clock. Mitchell Richardson is interviewed too, and he's charged. He's charged with resisting arrest, with criminal damage to Katie's flat, and with two counts of beating. The charges of having held Katie hostage and the threats he made to kill her aren't pursued. Lack of evidence, the police said. After making her statement, Katie just wants to start living her own life, to find a sense of normality. And so she goes shopping and she tries to see some of the friends she'd been cut off from during her relationship. But exactly a month after that traumatic ordeal, it's her sister's birthday. It's the 14th of November 2016. It's 7pm, and that means only one thing. Emmerdale. Julie, Katie's mother, hears a knock at the door. So, been at work all day. It's my other daughter Emma's birthday. We, Emma and I had spoken, I'd been at work all day. We came back. It was about quarter past five when Andy and I got back. We had dinner, we were doing a bit of work on the house and at quarter past seven I just sat down to watch the soaps that's why I know the time because it was just during the adverts as I knock on the door and I raced to the door to try and get it before the adverts finished and there was a police officer stood there and I knew I knew she was dead I knew she was dead and I said to him it's Katie isn't it and he said, are you Julie? And I just said, yeah, it's Katie, isn't it? And he said, are you on your own, love? And I just screamed and I came running through the house shouting for Andy. Um, the police officer came in, hadn't said anything at that point. Um, Andy was working in utility room here and he came racing in because he thought it was Mitchell. He thought I was screaming because it was Mitchell. And the police officer just said, I'm very sorry. And I don't remember much after that. I, rem- I remember, I do remember saying it can't be. You've got it wrong. How do you know? How do you know it's her? I do remember that bit. And I do remember that the police officer went out and came back. But I don't remember much after that. And he said he went to just check. I mean, obviously they knew it was her. They wouldn't have come here, but... And the next thing I really remember is Andy picking me up off the floor. I was just on the floor. Howling, I think. A month after she had told the police exactly what Mitchell Richardson was doing to her, Katie Wilding was found dead in Mitchell Richardson's flat with Mitchell Richardson. They had both died from a drug overdose. Quickly, the idea that it was a Romeo and Juliet-style suicide took hold on social media and in the local community. What happened on social media over the next few days? Because something very particular did happen, didn't it? Yes. So they died on the Monday. We, we, we did get a phone call Tuesday morning to say, you can't see Katie. She's been taken to Exeter. So Wednesday evening, bearing in mind I haven't seen Katie, I haven't identified her, I have no knowledge whatsoever what's happened. We were told by the police on a Tuesday morning it, it was they were looking at a suspicious death. So that's all we've been told, literally. So on the Tuesday, Wednesday, social media just went on fire with 
Mitchell's brother and his family. And they stated, Mitchell's brother stated that he had seen the post-mortem results. He had a friend who was in the um, coroner's office who had told him though, and I will never forget the words, there were no ligature marks. Why would you put that on social media? But that there were no ligature marks and no obvious physical damage to Katie, that it was a Romeo and Juliet, that they want, they couldn't be together, so they'd chosen to die together, and that it was, it was, a, it was a joint suicide, and it's what they wanted, and wasn't it romantic, um, that they were such a lovely couple, they were happy now, that they hoped Mitchell had found his peace. Um, what a lovely man. But it was all, that's, his brother went on to say that on social media. And from there on in, my children had to read that. But to read that was, was mortifying. And for them, they just got so angry because they had no other way of dealing with this. Somebody was saying their sister chose to be with somebody who had threatened to kill her and beaten her rather than be with their family. While these rumours were swirling around on social media, Julie received a private message. It alleged that Mitchell Richardson had been violent and abusive towards another woman. Julie's kept that message. She showed me it. I hope you don't mind me messaging you, but I just wanted you to know that I am so sorry to hear about Katie. My thoughts and prayers are with you and your family. I can't even begin to imagine how you must be feeling. Unfortunately, I know firsthand what Mitchell was capable of. It just absolutely breaks my heart that your beautiful daughter died at his hands. I only wish I had had the courage to speak out against him when I had the chance. All I pray and hope is that the truth comes out. And then quite quickly, Julie began to realise that things seemed to be going badly wrong. It started the minute police set foot on the scene, and it was something that Katie's dad, Andy, spotted first. They assumed that it was drugs, so they weren't... That was it. That was their tick box. Done. So they didn't investigate any further. Were they aware of the interview that she had given just a month before? Yes. And I asked them as well, um, when they went to the flat, when they got the 999 call, did they know where they... Obviously, they knew where they were going, the address, but did they know it was Mitchell Richardson that was there? And he said, yes, and we were aware of the history between him and Katie. So they were fully aware. They, They knew of Katie's video, or if they didn't know that night, they were very quickly aware... We also found out at the inquest that there are 34 minutes missing of the police log of that night. So from the minute the police arrive, they open a log and one person holds the log and they have to say who's gone in, who's gone out, etc, etc. And there are 34 minutes missing. So that might have just been an unfortunate accident, a few lost pages from a logbook. But they have never been found, so we'll never know. And there were other alarming problems with the police investigation. Julie starts to list them. They made lots of assumptions. They weren't aware of vital evidence. They didn't interview key witnesses. Also, uh, Mitchell's mother cleaned the flat for an hour, which she admitted on the night. She threw tablets away. She cleaned. She poured liquids away. She washed up. Um, That's that golden hour. That's right. The mother of a potential homicide suspect was not only at the flat, the scene of two deaths, for some time before the police were called. Even though she was there with the bodies, she didn't immediately call 999. Instead, she may have moved and disposed of vital evidence as she cleaned up. She said in her police statement she poured the liquid she found in various glasses down the sink, put bottles and cans in the bin, moved a bottle of medication from where she'd found it, and generally, she just, well 
tidied up. In her police statement made later that day, she said it was because she didn't want the police to see that her son lived in a mess, given everything that was known about Mitchell Richardson. And remember, he'd threatened to kill Katie, and she'd believed him. And the gravity of this horrific situation with two young people dead. Why wasn't Diana Richardson charged with interfering with a crime scene? Was it because the police had already decided in those first few minutes after arriving that it wasn't a crime scene at all? This is something I've heard time and time again in my investigation, how police, coroners and even pathologists approach these kinds of deaths, how they look at things differently when domestic abuse is involved. So the police didn't get a chance to, to find any evidence in that hour. The mother's never been prosecuted, even though they admit that she tampered with police evidence. So from day one, I've always believed that Katie didn't choose to die. And she was there because of him. Ahead of the coroner's inquest, which is an investigation to determine the cause of death, Julie made sure to ask for disclosure of all evidence gathered by the police to help her ask the right questions. And she discovered that what was absent from police evidence was even more revealing than what was actually there. I wanted everything. And she said to me, there is nothing. There is, all we've got is the statements from the people who were in the flat on the night, the official people, so the paramedics and the police. But we've got a statement from Mitchell's mother. But Mitchell's brother and the friend were in the flat. No statements had been taken from them. There were no witness statements from the people downstairs who had called the police just a few weeks earlier because they were frightened of her for her life. She said there's no evidence. They've not checked her bank. They didn't look at her car. There were other things too, like the fact that the forensic evidence which was taken from the scene, what was left after Mitchell Richardson's mother had cleaned up the flat, hadn't been looked at for over 15 months. It hadn't even been stored properly. I can't remember the exact words, but they had to take them outside and open them outside because there was a multitude of black flies uh, coming out of the bags, which meant all of the um, evidence was, was useless. So they hadn't stored this evidence correctly? No. No. So it was of no use? No use whatsoever. All this left Julie with no doubt in her mind. The police had failed her daughter. When we put this to Devon and Cornwall police, they defended their record and said that tackling domestic abuse is a priority for the force. Police fully investigated the circumstances surrounding the deaths of Katie Wilding and Mitchell Richardson in November 2016 and found that there was no evidence to suggest that this matter was a homicide. None of the complaints made by Julie Onger, which were upheld, would have had an impact on our findings in this case. This opinion was shared by the coroner. Mitchell told me he was going to kill her. He told me four weeks before she died that he was going to kill her. Oh, well, sorry, he said he could easily kill her with drugs and that we'd never prove it, and that was four weeks before she died. She died of drugs. She died of a combination of cocaine and morphine. I, I firmly believe, and always have done from the moment the police knocked on my door, that Mitchell planned her death. The coroner didn't find that, I'm trying to be honest. But we firmly believe the police didn't do their job properly. I'd had my head really deep in the detail of the Katie Wilding case, reading all the documents her mother had shown me and watching that police interview. But I felt that through it I was getting a really clear idea of what was going wrong. So I called my editor, Basher. 
So I've just been reviewing um, some of the reporting around the Katie Wilding case. Um, I guess I just wanted to sort of talk through a couple of elements because I've got I've got a couple of questions. Um, I guess my first sort of major concern is that the post-mortem did show that Katie had died of a drug overdose, mm. didn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That is right. And and am I right in thinking that there didn't seem to be any recent bruising or anything to suggest that Mitchell Richardson might have forced her to take the drugs or anything like that? No, no recent bruising on her body. Okay. So I guess I just, based on that, I suppose the question I had was really, was the police conclusion then really that unreasonable? Yeah, I, I had a feeling that you might want to talk this through. So I've been, what I've done is I've been mapping Jane Monkton Smith's eight steps towards a domestic homicide and and mapping things against it that happened in their relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay, do, do you want to just talk me through that then? Uh, well, Jane's eight stages to domestic homicide start with a pre-relationship history of stalking or abuse by the, the perpetrator. And, and we know that that was the case for Mitchell. The romance develops very quickly into a serious relationship. Um, That's the second stage, and this one definitely did. Then the next stage is that that relationship gets... It sort of becomes dominated by coercive, controlling behaviour. And from Katie's police interview, he was clearly controlling her, so so that's clear. And then then there's a trigger that threatens... um, that person's control and and that can easily be for example the relationship ends um or there's financial difficulty or, or something stressful and you know katie had left him at that point he was losing her yeah okay he'd apparently from what katie said repeatedly strangled her and that's so dangerous mm. in fact it's known now as non-fatal strangulation and it, it's so dangerous the government has agreed they've just agreed that it's going to be outlawed for the first time yeah yeah okay Okay, well, that, that, that does feel like it quite solidly follows that pattern. So I think, okay, so based off what you're saying, really six of the eight steps are quite clearly reflected here based off what we know. Um, so you feel pretty confident that this fits the profile of a potential hidden homicide. Of, I mean, obviously, there are things that we just cannot know for sure and that's where the police failings come in yeah it, it fits the the pattern of the eight steps to um a domestic homicide and you know it is important to state the other elements we know about so yes katie did die of a drugs overdose they both did but a hair strand test showed that she didn't take a lot of drugs she wasn't a habitual drug user yeah okay and have you gone to Mitchell Richardson's family yet about any of this? I can, I mean, I would imagine that their view of the events is very different to this. Mm, yeah, well, I have. Yeah, I have. And you have to keep in mind they're also a grieving family, so you can imagine that us getting in touch was really distressing and upsetting for them. They firmly believe it was an accidental overdose, and they heavily dispute Julie's version of events, and most particularly the way she characterises Katie and Mitchell's relationship. In fact, they believe there was actually a party with other people at that flat um, that night, and they're also really clear in relation to Diana Richardson's actions at the scene of the deaths when she found them. They really wanted to underline that the coroner found that she hadn't perverted the course of justice. And they also point out, which is fair, that people respond to shock and grief very differently, so it's unfair to suggest that what she did was wrong. Mm. Gosh, it's a really, it's a really tricky case, isn't it? Because there is, at the heart of it, something just very, well, it's just unresolvable. Yeah, it is. You're right. But it's not 
just about those final hours in the flat. It, it never was. What this case also shows very clearly to me is that hidden homicides are as much about police behaviour, about judgment, about action or inaction, as they are about the deaths themselves. And I do feel confident that in this case, we're seeing the start of a policing pattern that's clear in other cases of potential hidden homicides. And this is the theme I wanted to stay with in my reporting. I want to stick with the police because my investigation isn't about who's an abuser and who isn't. It's actually about understanding what is going wrong on a bigger scale. And so often it starts with the police. And as I told my mum when lockdown eased and I drove with my partner and kids to Yorkshire to see her for a chilly, damp summer picnic outside, my thoughts were just fizzing at this point. We are letting killers walk the streets for their next victim. This is our expert, Professor Jane Monkton-Smith. We are actually allowing very dangerous people to get away with murder and that empowers them. They think they're bulletproof. And then, you know, they might go and do it again. I knew I needed to look at the systems that police are using to protect victims from domestic abuse. And I just remembered the story of the New York Police Department that I'd listened to. They were trying to get on top of a crime wave in the 80s and there was this guy called Jack Maple. He was a gritty New York cop who was stuck working the subway. But when he took a step back and started to connect up the data he saw the big crime wave was actually bunched in specific areas. And so using subway data, he managed to understand the problem and fix it. I needed to investigate how we store data on domestic abuse, whether we even record it, and to start asking the police to give me that data. But I was stuck because how do you ask for a number when you know people aren't counting it? I'm talking about things like what databases police are using, what's recorded on them, whether there's any consistency between force areas, the kind of training police are getting, and how much they actually know about a victim when they turn up at the scene of a sudden death. Any system that any institution creates only counts what it cares about. Ultimately, that means it counts what we, as a society, care about. I started working with a data journalist, Patricia Clark, and I bought an expensive book recommended to me by a policeman I spoke to for background on how senior officers should operate when they attend at a scene. It's the latest edition of the Senior Investigating Officer's Handbook. And what I read in those pages felt very far away from what I was hearing had happened in real life by certain officers on the ground. And I felt like Jack Maple must have done when he realised New York police were completely missing how the story on the ground reveals the bigger picture. And it illuminated a story I had already come across in such a startling new way. It's a story that's shocking for exactly the reasons we're talking about known information was ignored, and the result was catastrophic. But this this whole fight has consumed you for the last nine years. Non-stop, all the time. Yeah, keep, keep waiting and writing, but you couldn't give up. You just couldn't give up. You couldn't say, oh, we'd finish at that. You couldn't. You had to carry on and... Because we knew what we were told was, was, was not true. They misled us. Meet Peter and Elizabeth Skelton. They're a remarkable couple, now in their mid-80s. The Skeltons have been fighting for almost a decade now to get their daughter Susan's murder not just recognised, but for the police to take responsibility for failing to protect her. 
When we ask just how many women have been killed by their partners, numbers that no one, including the police or the Home Office, knows the answer to, it's the skeletons who show us more than anything just how much this question matters. Their fight reveals so much about the mess our policing system finds itself in. A bizarre willingness to believe a man's account of his partner's sudden death, even when his history of extreme violence is perfectly well known. Of police seemingly making their mind up within minutes of arriving at the scene. Of ignoring the victim's family's legitimate concerns that something more sinister has gone on. And as Katie's case shows us, and now too, the skeletons, there is a clear failure to follow the first responder's basic ABC set out in that police handbook I've been reading. A is assume nothing. B is believe nothing. C is challenge and check everything. It's like came down and he's just told me that she is. Yeah, oh, all right. OK, could you ask him just to tell you why, why he thinks she looks like, it looks like she's dead? Rob, why do you think she's dead? I think it could be suffocation. He thinks it could be suffocation. OK, uh, and what, from, from what, from what? It's April 2011 in Worthing south of England. A woman calls 999. Her neighbour isn't breathing. Right, OK, did you...? No, I didn't hear what... Um, they both crashed out on their sofa last night. Rob woke up with his head at one end, mm. but Sue's face was like in the middle of the sofa. Like the woman who stopped breathing is 52-year-old Susan Nicholson. Her partner, a man called Robert Trigg, found her and alerted the neighbour. Robert Trigg told the police they'd both been drinking and had fallen asleep on the sofa together. He woke up and found her no longer breathing. The police came, investigated and left, satisfied with Robert Trigg's story. And that story was he'd rolled over in his sleep and accidentally suffocated her. Susan's family were informed about what had happened and were told it was an open and shut case. Except the skeletons, well, they sensed something was wrong. We cannot understand why the police covered up for Susan's murder when it was an obvious murder. You know, you can understand perhaps uh, making a mistake if it's a borderline sort of thing, yes. but this was obviously a murder. Mm. But why the police covered up for it, we can never understand why. When I get in contact with the skeletons through their lawyer, they invite me down to see them. But what's in my mind is they're elderly and we're in the middle of a pandemic. But Mrs Skelton's hearing means that a phone interview, which takes several hours, just isn't going to work. And they need to talk in person. They have so much to say. I travelled south to meet the skeletons. I was feeling pretty raw, but I was keen to hear what they had to say. And so my producer and I knock on the door. We put our masks on. We gel our hands. And Peter and Elizabeth Skelton invite us into their living room, where we, all four of us, sit far away from each other. Hi. Nice to meet you. And in fact, it's a good thing we're far apart because Elizabeth Skelton needs space for the huge stack of papers that she set out in front of her on the table. This one here, used paper. Here she is here. This was October. This is one of the newest papers there. As we talk, she's hopping between a heap of documents, sifting through pages and reading me bits of testimony, evidence, letters gathered over almost a decade since her daughter died. There is an interestingly forensic quality to her and her husband, Peter's, interview. A quality, it becomes blindingly obvious, that was missing from the police investigation into Susan's death. Susan was 52 when she died. She had two children, both boys, 
and it soon became clear that as a young girl, her life had been full of promise. Yeah, she was brilliant. She had yeah. brains to burn. When she left school, she got a job at Coots Bank. And the first job she got at 17, she was 17, 17 yeah. and the first yeah. job she got was at Coots Bank in London. Yeah. She had brains to burn. Yeah, she really so Within a short time, she was made head of the stock and share department. Yeah. And so she, she knew all the stockbrokers all around and everything. Was she enjoying her life in Oh, London? she did, yeah. Yeah, she's a, But she was, she smoked right when she was going to school. You know, actually she had these cigarettes. I remember when she, I found out she was smoking. And then, of course, she was, she wasn't an alcoholic, she was a binge drinker. She'd be the first one into a party and the last one to leave, that sort of thing. But after her marriage broke down, Susan was unhappy. She started drinking too much and it was actually through a stint in rehab that she met Robert Trigg. Her mum and dad only met him a few times and they thought he was all right. I mean, let's say unobjectionable at least. But when they heard the terrible news about their daughter that she had suddenly died, they knew something was up. So when were you absolutely sure that something had gone very wrong? As soon as, she, as soon as we heard she had died, we were suspicious, yeah. weren't we? Yeah, but we first we thought that well, the police were on our side, they'd be investigating the case. But after the inquest, we realised they weren't going to do any investigation. The police repeated the story that Robert Trigg had accidentally killed Susan in her sleep. The couple were drinking, they'd fallen deeply asleep on this sofa together, and Robert had supposedly suffocated Susan without realising. To the skeletons, this seemed ludicrous. We didn't believe it because... The sofa was too narrow yeah. for two people yeah. to sleep on. Yeah. You know, because we even measured the sofa and gave the measurements of Susan. Like, they said she was lying on her back on the sofa. Well, Susan's width of her shoulders is 15 inches because it was exactly the same as yours, yeah. 15 inches wide. Yeah. And uh, so if she was lying on her back on the sofa and the sofa was, say, 21 inches wide, there was only about six inches for a trig to sleep on. Mm. You know, so we said it's too narrow for two people to sleep on. Just like with Katie's death, the problems investigating Susan's death began right from the outset here too. The police were called at just after nine o'clock, about three minutes past nine, Sunday morning, uh, and they were there and the, and the paramedics were there. The paramedics called the police and the thing was, Diaz Herbert didn't come till nearly half past twelve yeah. and left at five to one. And as soon as she walked into Susan's flat, she declared that that's that suspicious. So that decision was made very early on yeah, by her. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she was only in Sue's flat for Less than half 27 half. minutes. Yeah. And uh, then she left, left saying it wasn't suspicious. Mm. But because of that, no forensic experts were called. So if it wasn't suspicious, you don't need those. Yeah. So no forensic experts were called. What should have been perfectly reasonable suspicions weren't followed up on discrepancies in Robert Triggs' account of when he'd found Susan unresponsive, for instance. PC Adams was the first police officer who went into Susan's flat and he said he got the receipt for the cigarettes. He said he'd woke up at 8.15 and tried to wake Susan up and she wouldn't wake up, so he got up and then he went off out to buy cigarettes and then he came back. Uh, now, he woke up at 8.15, but when the PC Adams got the receipt for the cigarettes, he woke up. The receipt for the cigarettes showed he bought the cigarettes at 11 minutes past eight. Also, the police had recently attended a violent incident at Susan's flat and had cautioned Robert Trigg. That meant he'd had to accept responsibility. They also had Robert Trigg on record as a serial abuser. 
He'd beaten one woman up so badly she'd been in hospital for three weeks. But beyond all that, one extraordinary thing stood out. The police knew a crucial fact about Trigg, a fact the Skeltons didn't find out until much later on. However, one officer on the scene, the day Susan's body was found, knew this fact, and he, to his credit, spoke out. Everyone else, it appeared, believed Susan's killer. From the moment 999 was called, Robert Trigg set up a narrative that the police didn't challenge. But when PC Adams raised his voice saying Trigg should be arrested, he was overruled by the senior investigating officer who it seems had decided no crime had occurred. Given everything the police knew about Trigg's past, it's so hard for me to understand this decision. So maybe there's something cultural happening here, something about the way police view victims of domestic abuse. And it's something Jane's talked to me about, the low status of a woman who, as it seems from the outside, chooses to stay with a man who keeps on hurting her. I think there there are multiple systemic reasons why a lot of these um, homicides are going unrecognised. The low status of domestic abuse is a big one. The ready acceptance of smoking guns as explanations for death. So one of the one of the common themes that is coming up in in these deaths is drug intoxication. So we're finding that they and we have been proved right. So I'm not this isn't just hypothetical. When there's been a sudden death and there's drug intoxication, you have to think about forced ingestion. Katie Wilding, you've got to think about forced ingestion. And that's she's certainly not the only case. But assumptions are made. Oh, look, this is just two people partying who got it wrong. It's much easier to just, say, put that down as misadventure or whatever. And the skeletons witnessed this as Susan, not Robert Trigg, was put on trial when her inquest was held a legal hearing which declares the cause of someone's death. I I can't get to grips with him. I honestly don't know how he could do such an inquest. It was so open and so blatant that what he was doing, he was was all on Trigg's side. It was Susan who was put on trial. We said that right at the beginning. The police and coroner were insistent. This was an accidental death, but I've never come across anyone more quietly relentless than the skeletons. They seem to have taken on board that police investigatory mantra, which they could presumably have known nothing about. Remember, it was A, assume nothing. B, believe nothing. C, challenge and check everything. Something wasn't right. The timings didn't add up. The sofa was too small. And then they discovered the fact which changed everything. There are so many parallels between the two cases of Katie Wilding and Susan Nicholson. Both their families noticed police errors at the initial scene of death. Both families questioned the officers' assessments, that they were looking at accidents, rather than treating these deaths as potential homicides. And in both cases, the officers on the ground should have been quickly aware of the information on police computer systems about the abusive men involved. Data sharing. It's something former police chief superintendent Gavin Thomas talked to me about. He used to be in charge of public protection in Gloucestershire, and he's really concerned about poor and patchy data sharing. That's between police, social services, GPs, hospitals, housing and domestic abuse charities. 
Without proper data sharing, he pointed out it's so hard to build up the real picture of the risk that a woman could be facing. I would like to see in the 21st century where we're digitally connected, where we're living in a data-rich environment, that a professional, doesn't necessarily have to be a police officer, it could be a social care worker, somebody who is charged with the duty of protecting the vulnerable in our society, has the right information at the right time, at the right place to protect that individual and make those key decisions. And it could be a social worker. A social worker may be attending a dress and may not be aware that the police were around, uh, you know, a couple of days before. So there is still a fundamental issue here around agencies being able to share data effectively. We were very aware that we had two cases, two cases which shared a lot, but they didn't help us answer the bigger question that we'd set ourselves. We had just sent out the freedom of information requests, which we hoped might be a step towards answering those big questions. We sent out three multi-part questions, but the one at the heart of it all was, we wanted police to tell us how many women had died suddenly or in mysterious circumstances who they already knew were being abused by their partner or ex. And we wanted to know as well how many had gone missing. With the email sent, I turned my attention back to Sussex Police. I'm back in the skeleton's living room. It's a beautiful autumn afternoon and you can hear the gulls crying outside. But inside, the curtains are drawn, the papers are out, and it's down to business. The inquest into her death had been stressful for the skeletons. Susan's struggles with alcohol had come under scrutiny. But why? They felt she was being blamed. And then they received a phone call. It was from the family of one of Robert Trigg's former partners, a woman called Caroline Devlin. That's when Caroline's family got in touch with us. Yeah. They phoned up us and got in touch with us because they read about Susan's case and then they immediately got in touch with us then after that, yeah. Well, after the inquest? After the inquest, when, when we said, you know, the reporters put it on the paper, the birthing hurt. <clears throat> and what did Caroline Devlin's family say to you? This, this, this spoke about how their daughter died as well, because they had mentioned, so I heard the word Trigg, and Robert Trigg went to Caroline's uh, funeral, and that was up in Scotland. They took her up to Scotland, and, and he went, we went to Caroline's funeral. And when Susan was being buried, he wanted to know, could he come to Susan's funeral? And we said no, straight yeah. away. Because straight away we knew there was something not right, didn't we? Yeah. There was something wrong, that this, this, this didn't add up. In 2006, five years before Susan Nicholson died, Robert Trigg had another partner, Caroline Devlin. She was 35 years old, and like Susan, she died suddenly. Her death had supposedly been down to natural causes. The details of Caroline's story are harrowing. She was found lifeless and blue on the bed she shared with Robert Trigg. But he didn't report it straight away. Instead, he told Caroline's 14-year-old son to go in and check on his dead mother. Robert Trigg didn't call emergency services either. He left her son to run to their neighbour's house, who sounded the alarm. So, to be totally clear, despite the fact that Sussex police knew Robert Trigg's previous partner had died suddenly, despite the fact they had him on record as a violent abuser of yet another earlier girlfriend, still they failed to properly interrogate what might possibly have led to Susan's death beyond the story Robert Trigg told them. And then, when the skeletons pushed them to investigate, they refused. 
You can probably hear my indignation here. It's hard not to tell this story without feeling a sense of outrage. This is the cost of a hidden homicide. In the very worst cases, a killer walks free to kill again. And both times, it was Sussex police that failed to investigate. That's important. I'm going to come back and tell you more about this force because they offer an astonishing example of a bad pattern. If Caroline's death had been properly investigated, Susan might still be alive today. Do you think that abusers have got away with their killings because the relationship was abusive and therefore they weren't looked at properly? Yes, um, I... I think that once domestic abuse is talked about, identified, there's a there's this mindset that everyone says is, oh, it's just a domestic. So there are a raft of ready-made excuses and justifications that the police and others, it's not just the police and others, can use to say, oh, that's what happened, that's what happened. And it, it's like a confirmation bias, so there's no need to look any, any further. I could tell my frustration was rising. We'd received refusals from the first set of our FOI answers. The police were stonewalling, just like they had done to those families. And having met the Skeltons, it was really evident to me the toll this had all taken on an elderly couple who had lost their daughter. Because at this point in the Skeltons' battle, even after they know about what had happened to Caroline Devlin, Sussex police were refusing to open an investigation into Susan's death. How many other women had been failed, lethally let down by Sussex police? With something like that, when you're so certain that you're right, you can't give up. You know, so we, we were never going to give up. You know, what, so whatever obstacles they put in front of us, it wouldn't make any difference at all. We wouldn't give up. So we just have to, have to keep on, you know, and, you know, just carry on fighting until we got to the right conclusion. It's now late 2015. That's four years after Susan's death. It's nine years after Caroline's. And the man the skeletons were now certain had killed them both was still walking free. And he'd started seeing someone new. The more I looked into it, the more I began to seriously question Sussex Police's attitude to domestic abuse. Because it wasn't just Susan Nicholson. The evidence was mounting. In the next episode, the story of a body left in a hospital morgue and multiple failures to follow up on a family's concerns, mistakes that can't be undone. If you'd like to read more about the skeletons and their fight for justice, you can go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash hidden homicides to find out more. This series was reported by me, Louise Tickle, and produced by Matt Russell, with additional reporting by Claudia Williams and Patricia Clark. The editor was Basha Cummings, with original music by Tom Kinsella. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, please head over to the charity website, Advocacy After Fatal Domestic Abuse. That's www.after.org.uk.
I'd like to tell you about Tortoise, who I've worked with to make this podcast. Tortoise does slow news, not breaking news. And we're an open newsroom, which means there are lots of fascinating meetings and events you can join in on from wherever you are in the world. You can help to shape Tortoise's journalism and the stories we tell. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use the code POD50 for a discounted membership.